0: Well, that's an appropriate song for right before the message because today I'm going to be talking about Jesus and His blood and how it washes us white as snow. Uh, we've been talking about the evidence and the foundations upon which our faith is built. We well, I started this whole series with this idea that um, back in the day, most Canadians, most Americans were Christians, and uh, but slowly on people have started doubting and, and more and more people have left the faith. And um, uh, in Canada in particular, the mainline denominations are, are just being depleted. People are just leaving the church in droves. And so while about 20 years ago, it might have been people who once had a faith or once believed in God that we were trying to reach, now we're trying to reach their children who basically have no faith in God. They have no belief System in in a God or in creation by God, uh, and they're they're completely without this kind of idea. And so we need to go back to: well, why is the Bible true? It's no longer just say uh, good enough for a lot of people. Just say the Bible is, says this, therefore believe it. Uh, so we, the first thing we did is we we started with the idea that the Bible was eyewitness accounts that that the the apostles actually saw what Jesus was doing. And uh, they they wrote about it. And I think we have a verse on the screen for this. Um, and then the next thing we, we looked at is we looked at the the divinity of Christ and that it wasn't just something that slowly developed over time by the apostles or even in Christ's own ministry, but we saw right from the very beginning, Jesus knew that he was divine. And he he didn't, you know, he didn't go around broadcasting that, so to speak, but he, he did know it and it's clear. And then as, he, as the apostles started to trust him, he, he let it be known that he was, in fact, divine. Then we talked about how we got our Bibles and how the whole process of elimination of, of material that wasn't uh, worthy of being called Scripture was deleted and how we got our Bibles. Then Joshua, uh, two weeks ago, talked about faith and how important it is to have faith. And that faith is part of truth, actually. Um, you know, you can't experience some things... Unless you put your faith in those things first. You can't experience flying unless you put your faith in a pilot who takes you up. And I've had to put my faith in my son a few times. And uh, I have no idea how he does it and what he does. But he takes us up. And I put my faith in him. And, it's, and I have a fantastic time. It's a great experience. You've got to try it sometime. Um, you know, you, you can't go water skiing unless you put your faith in the skipper. You 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 can't go down a roller roller coaster unless you put your faith in the unseen. You know what the unseen is in the in the case of a roller coaster, it's the engineer who built the thing. <laughs> you know you got to put your faith in him, otherwise you can't enjoy it. And uh, like they say, you, you you can't go for a ride unless you get in the saddle. And and so it is with Christianity. There are certain parts of faith in Jesus Christ, of believing in the in the Bible. That we have to actually take that step of faith in Christ before we experience the reality and the personal relationship of Jesus Christ. And so faith is a vital part. And then last week we talked about prophecy and sort of this undisputable claim of the Bible to be the word of God. And the fact that it's filled with prophecies that came true, unbelievably so. And it's a miracle that we can hold in our hands and talk about and discuss, and we can look at the results of that miracle firsthand. It's really amazing. And so uh, I thought this was going to be the last in the series today's message, but after I got to about 50 pages of notes, I went, yeah, it's not going to cut it in one sermon, so I had to divide this one in half. Um, But this introduction serves for both of the messages. Basically, you need all of this background material so that you can you can trust the new testament and then when you what you find in the new testament is an amazing fact that jesus christ died for our sins and then on the third day after being dead for three days he rose back to life uh, to the glory of god and for our salvation and so that's what we're going to have a look at today and next week Um, and so this message is kind of predicated on the previous messages which is why i bring them up so let's Ask the Lord to bless his word this morning and prepare our hearts. Father, we come to you today, and um, as we come to this most reverent part of your word, the most powerful part, the part where God Almighty comes down to earth as a baby and lives a perfect life and then dies for us in our stead. Pay the penalty for our sin. Lord, we pray that your word be applied to our heart and that we would find um, its truth to be empowering for us. Lord, we pray that you would anoint me as I speak your word. I pray that you would allow me to speak it in power and in truth. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our ears so that we might hear what the Spirit is saying to the church this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Dr. Robert Stein has a plaque in his office and it says this, Let conversation cease. Let laughter flee. This is the place where death delights to help the living. Kind of an unusual plaque. <laughs> probably not a regular doctor. No, Mr. Stein is not. He is a leading forensic pathologist and it's his life's work to make the dead talk. In fact, uh, Lee Strobel says, for him, dead men do tell tales. And uh, so he actually takes uh, corpses, and he's done 20,000 autopsies. I can't even believe that number. That's like five a day or something in a lifetime. It's crazy. But he does this, and he, and he, he sifts through all the details of these corpses to do what? To find out why they died, how they died, and then reconstruct that. And sometimes his reconstruction allows people who've been accused of murder to go free. And sometimes his reconstruction puts the sort of the, the last nail in the coffin of the person who committed the crime. And his work is, is uh, so important to, uh, to the, the court system that we have. It's powerful. And, and you've probably seen a CSI or various shows on TV that, that describe the work that uh, these men do. And... You know the interesting thing is that that these were this work is so powerful to th- for today, but you know what medical examination can also be powerful in learning about someone who died by a brutal death on a cross two thousand years ago. You could also use medicine to describe what happened there because we have so many clues because the, the the apostles the eyewitnesses wrote down so many things that are are very obviously. Signs that uh, the medical profession can dig into and find out what exactly happened 3, or 2,000 years ago. You know, the interesting thing is that some people have questioned his death. You know uh, In order for there to be a resurrection, what do you have to have first? <laughs> yeah, you gotta have someone who dies, right? And so next week I want to talk about the resurrection. But this week I want to make sure that we understand that in fact Jesus did die. He didn't uh, swoon, as some people like to say. In fact, the for the first 600 years after Jesus died on the cross, uh, nobody ever questioned whether uh, Jesus had died or not. They all just assumed that he had died, and they assumed it because. Everybody knew that he had died. And so uh, I went looking for references to uh, anybody saying that Jesus didn't die before the the 7th century. And I looked on all the Muslim sites. I looked all over the place, and I could not find anything anywhere on the Internet. Now, it might exist out there. I don't know. But uh, I I was actually looking for someone who said it didn't exist. I couldn't find that either, so just telling you the truth here. Uh, I don't think it exists. But uh, 700, or around 690, I think, uh, Muhammad uh, basically said, oh, Jesus didn't die on the cross. It kind of came out of thin air. uh, And and this is what's written in the Quran. Um, And they're saying, indeed, we have killed the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah. They did not kill him, nor did they crucify him. But another was made to resemble him to them. And indeed, those who differ over it are in doubt about it. They have no knowledge of it except the following, the following of assumption. And they did not kill him for certain. <laughs> You've got to ask, well, who's assuming what here <laughs> in this passage? Uh, in fact, you know that today there's actually a shrine in um, Singar Kashmir that is supposedly burial place um, i don't know how he got all the way over there hundreds and hundreds of miles away when didn't have trains or that kind of thing but anyways that's what they say um, and so ultimately who are you going to believe the eyewitnesses and there are many eyewitnesses not just christians but all through the the first century there are people who wrote about the death of christ uh, are you going to believe those eyewitnesses or are you going to believe someone who lived 700 years later, a desert mystic who uh, had visions and, and dreams and basically wrote, rewrote a lot of history and who are we going to believe? Um, the thing is that there's a ton of eyewitnesses. For instance, um, uh, who's this guy? What's his name? A Roman historian. He's a non Christian. His name is Tacticus. And he says that Jesus Christ suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And so this is just one example. There are many examples of people just writing when Jesus comes up. Oh, he died. Some of them say he rose again, some just say he he was put to death. And uh, it's all through uh, much of ancient literature. And the interesting thing is that there's no denial of that, that he died. Um, it's, there's, there's no, you know, the scribes, the Pharisees, hearing of Jesus' resurrection, they didn't go around, well, maybe he didn't die. Nobody even thought of that. And the reason nobody thought of it is what I'm going to describe in the next uh, little while. Um, because the Roman way of executing was brutal, and it was final, and nobody survived it, basically. Um, If the the death of Jesus was a a myth, it had to be created overnight because Jesus gets executed and within weeks, the disciples are are spreading the news all over Jerusalem that he had died and rose again. And so there wasn't time to to make up stories, really, and uh, make a, a myth out of it. As far as the Jewish leaders are concerned, this new religion was a distortion of the Jewish faith and, in fact, blasphemy. Since Christians claim that Jesus was himself son of God, uh, I mean, this is when, when Jesus was being uh, uh, questioned by the high priest, that's exactly what they focused on. Here in Matthew Mark 14, it says, um, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And so the Pharisees wanted him to die. And so if he didn't die, uh, they, they wouldn't have been happy. But they never ever say, well, he didn't die. He just swooned or he just, you know, just was unconscious for a while and then came back to life. Um, the Jewish leader said to Pontius Pilate, we have a law. According to that law, he ought to die because he made himself son of God. So the Jewish people were totally against anything that Jesus stood for, anything that the, uh, the apostles stood for. The Jews were against that. So if they would have claimed that Jesus was alive, the Jews would have tried to prove that he wasn't alive or that he hadn't died, one or the other. And they never did either of those things one of the things is that that the resurrection is disputed right away by the jewish leaders Uh, they say oh somebody stole his body right away they claim that but never do they claim that jesus didn't die one of the earliest writers uh paul he said Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. What I love about that is Paul is buttressing his argument by saying, hey, there's still lots of people alive. In other words, go and ask them. Remember last week I I talked about uh, Daniel who who had this resurrection experience in in Nigeria. And, um, you know, one of the things that nobody's doubting is that Daniel's alive. You know why? You can go over to Nigeria and, you know, call him up and have a meeting with him. <laughs> he's, as far as I know, he's still alive. It was only 15 years ago, and he was only about 30 at the time, so that makes him about 45. So it's, it's not that difficult. Um, and so here are people who are alive who witnessed Jesus, who witnessed him go up into heaven, and and Paul is is referring his audience to them and saying, well, you can ask these people. They're, they're still alive. Go go and check it out yourself. Um, and it's the same kind of thing. They don't need a whole lot of proof at that point. Um, why in the world would the, a group of Jews um, fabricate the death of Christ? Because when you think about it, why would they say that Jesus had died and and been executed if, in fact, Muhammad Muhammad is right. Well, it was actually somebody else that died. Someone else was put on the cross. Uh, Why would Christians uh, not say, well, yeah, it was someone else if it was indeed the truth? It's not the truth. That's why. And they said, Jesus is the one who died. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. And so when Paul is preaching this, he's basically saying, yeah, it's not really great having a a, a guy who is condemned as a criminal and crucified. In other, and according to the Jewish law, that meant that he was cursed by Yahweh. And so here you're following a cursed leader who's been executed as a criminal of the state. It's not exactly a claim to fame. It's not exactly like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is our amazing later. He got crucified. What? And so it's kind of unusual to think that if he hadn't actually been crucified, that the, the, the Christians would pick up this cause and say that he had. It just doesn't make sense. Um, in the history of... Christian missions, Neil uh, or Stephen Neal wrote this, Christians under the Roman Empire had no legal right to existence and were liable to the utmost stringency of the law. Every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. This is because they believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If they didn't believe in those things, they wouldn't have to face that. And so the great truth of the scriptures is that that Christianity spread like wildfire in the first century. Why? Because of its truth. <laughs> That's why. People weren't trying to hide that fact. So the, uh, the, the idea, the Muslim idea that Jesus didn't really die has not been given much credibility in the West. Where there's, where there's scholarly research into it, it just hasn't been given much credibility. But about 235 years ago, uh, there's this Rome. Uh, German theologian by the name of Karl Barth. Maybe you've heard of him. Um, But he suggested that Jesus deliberately took some drugs from the physician Luke to pass out on the cross so that he could fake his death. (laughs) Thank you for laughing. (laughs) It's a bit unusual uh, because um, you you would suffocate, anyways. We're going to get to that. But Someone else picked that up. Another Karl, another German theologian, Karl Venturini, suggests that Jesus regained consciousness in the cool, damp air of the tomb. And a third rationalist theologian, Heinrich Paulus, uh, suggested similar ideas. And and all of these ideas started to become known as the swoon theory. Basically, the idea is that Jesus, in the heat of the day, he he passed out on the cross, and uh, then they took him down off the cross, and they put him in this nice, cool crisp tomb and it was damp in there and and somehow uh, the air and the coolness revived him and he came back to life. And so on the face of it, some might go like, oh, that actually hmm, might make sense. Until you actually look at the facts. And then you realize that no not really. But what what happens uh, is scholars basically have debunked this theory. But what happens is that this theory sticks around in people's mind. Why? Because people don't want to believe because if they believe they're accountable to God. And so in 1929, D.H. Uh, Lawrence writes a fictional, fictional story about this and about how Jesus was revived and how Jesus came back to life and went off to Egypt and, and fell in love with Princess Iris of Egypt. <laughs> Anyways, uh, then Hugh Schofield in 1965 wrote the Passover plot, suggested Jesus wasn't expecting to be spared at the end of his crucifixion. But he made it out alive, anyways. Um, then uh, Donovan Joyce in seventy two uh, wrote the Jesus Scroll, swoon theory revived. Eighty two, uh, Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Uh, th- this one was written with the twist that uh, Pontius Pilate was paid off to take Christ's body off the off the cross early. And Barbara Barbara Thering wrote Jesus in the Riddle of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, again. Brings up the whole, this was in, in 92, brings up the whole swoon theory thing. Um, and <laughs> I like what Luke Johnson of Emory University says about all of these books. He basically says, the purest poppycock, the product of fervent imagination rather than careful analysis. Uh, and so, like, a, but the problem is that when you get this idea out there, like an urban myth, it starts to grow all on its own. And people just start accepting it because that's the truth they want to accept. It's too hard for them to accept a truth that someone actually rose from the dead. And so this idea just gets spread rampant, even though there's not a shred of evidence of any kind that would suggest it. It's just pure imagination. And so we're going to look at why it's pure imagination. We're going to look at what the Bible says. And uh, I'm going to share with you a... um, A medical analysis of the crucifixion. So I'm not going to get too passionate about the crucifixion experience, but I'm going to give you a medical analysis of the crucifixion. This medical analysis was done by Alexander Methrell. He's a a medical doctor, but he also has a PhD in engineering, so he likes to be very meticulous, Uh, and this guy's got it all down. So he's kind of a brilliant guy that really knows his stuff, and he has a really great understanding of the human body. So uh, his analysis starts actually in the Garden of Gethsemane um, where the the Bible talks about Jesus sweating drops of blood. And some people have said, well, how can someone sweat drops of blood? That doesn't sound plausible at all. Well, um, Alexander says that um, he was experiencing deep psychological stress. And when someone experiences deep psychological uh, um, stress, what happens He's, he, he calls it by this term, hermitidosis. Now, hermitidosis is associated with this high degree of stress. And basically, he says, when there's severe anxiety, the chemicals break down in the capillaries of the sweat gr- glands. And uh, as a result, there's a small amount of bleeding into these glands. And the sweat comes out, tinged with blood. So the sweat, it's still sweat mostly, but there's a little bit of blood in it, and it makes the sweat red. And so we're not looking at tons of blood. It's just just sweat that looks red. And, um, and this, what happens when you, when you have that experience is it kind of destroys this, the skin tissue a little bit. And the skin becomes very sensitive and tender to the touch. You just touch someone, and it hurts, and they jump back. And so um, with this skin, that fragile, the next day, Jesus is brought in for judgment right and what does the emperor or what does Pontius Pilate do he he wants to make an ex- he 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 doesn't want to kill jesus so instead he has him flogged now flogging is a ridiculous form of torture that basically can kill people it it, it killed many people and uh, so with this extremely fragile skin that jesus has he submitted to Flogging. And Pontius Pilate basically wants to flog him so that he's a, he's a mess, so that the Jews won't crucify him. So it's, it's not a weird way of trying to save someone's life. We'll beat him half to death <laughs> so that they, they'll feel bad for him and they'll let him live. It uh, doesn't actually happen. But that's the, basically the idea that we get from the, the New Testament uh, way of looking at it. And so, uh, Mirtharol says that this Roman flogging was absolutely brutal basically they would have a whip with nine piece, long strips of leather and in the leather they would tie little little lead balls and little pieces of bone and what the lead balls would do is they would actually crush the skin and bruise it so bad and then the bones in the whip would actually tear it up and they basically the flesh should be torn from torn from the neck all the way down to just below the knee and all of that flesh would just be shredded to li- ribbons by this method. In in the the uh, it says the back would be so shredded that part of the spine and some sometimes exposed by the deep cuts. The whipping would have gone all the way from the shoulders down to the back, the buttocks, and the back of the legs. It was terrible. One physician who s- studied Roman beatings said. As the flogging continues, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. A third-century historian named es- Esibus described flog- flogging by saying, the sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles, sinews and the bowels of the victim exposed to the air. And so mo- a lot of people would die from this uh, torture. And they say that at the very least, the victim would experience tremendous pain and go into hypervolemic shock. That's the medical term. Hyper meaning uh, low volume. You can see the word volume in the word. And uh, emic is is basically the word for blood, the Latin word. So it basically means low blood shock. Uh, That's what happens. Uh, Or low blood volume shock. And this does four things, he, uh, this medical professor says. He says the heart races to pump blood where, when there isn't blood. And so actually it's very bad for you because basically your heart's racing and you're pumping all the blood out of your body. Uh, and secondly, the blood pressure drops, causing fainting or collapse. Third, the kidneys stop producing urine to maintain whatever volume of fluid that's left in the body. And fourth, the person becomes very thirsty, as the body craves fluids to replace the blood that's been lost, and so Jesus was very obviously in the hypovolemic shock when he was forced to carry the crossbeam of the cross out towards Golgotha, and finally Jesus collapses, and it's trying to be dispassionate, but it's hard. Trying to be a medical doctor. I don't think I'd do well as a medical doctor. <laughs> and uh, so they forced Simon to carry the cross. And of course, on the cross, Jesus says, I thirst. Again, likely a very probable result of hypervolemic shock. Um, now, a lot of times people don't know what kills a person when they're, when they're uh, crucified. Um, but actually, the trained medical examiner can attest that Jesus Christ uh, couldn't have escaped this brutalization by when he was hanging on the cross. Um, can he bleed out and never less alive? No. Um, the Romans used spikes that were five to seven inches long and tapered to a sharp point. And these were driven through the wrists. And... Murthrell says that um, it was about an inch below the palm. Uh, now this was still considered part of the hands when uh, during during Jesus day um, through the wrists and this th- if if they pierced it through his palm, it would have ripped out by the weight. It just wouldn't be able to hold him up um, and uh, so the nails went through the wrists also this is considered um, oh sorry. He says that this would mean that the nail would be driven through the median nerve. It's a large nerve that goes to your hand. It would cause incredible, excruciating pain. Um, Have you ever hit your funny bone real hard? He says it's like that. Except that it's constant and it's like someone were in not just hitting that, that funny bone. He said it would be like someone taking a pair of pliers and just quimping down on that, uh, that nerve ending. The pain was absolutely unbearable, he continued. In fact, it is literally beyond words to describe. In fact, they invented a word to describe the pain on the cross. You know what that word is? It's excruciating. That word has the the key word, the cross, in it. It comes from the cross, excruciating. Uh, It means out of the cross. Now, some people have tried to uh, belittle the the way they... and and said, oh, they used ropes, they didn't nail people to the cross. But actually, in 1968, uh, while they were doing uh, archaeological work in Palestine they found uh, a whole bunch of people from around that era that were crucified on crosses. And they actually found uh, the nails still in their hands and pieces of uh, olive wood still part of the nails. And and that's exactly where they nailed them through, right through the the wrists like that. And then they also took the feet and they they nailed it down into the cross. (coughs) And so can this can death be faked on a cross or or can it be survived? And the answer is no. Um, basically, there's a slow death because of uh, asphyxiation. Basically, what happens is when your arms are stretched out like that and you're hanging on a cross, the your lung your lungs are open up in the in the uh, uh, let me read this. <laughs> So, so they say that both shoulders would, be, would have been dislocated. And actually, they, ju- they just calculate this by m- mathematically, that the weight of the person would dislocate the shoulders. Of course, that fulfilled the prophecy in in, proverb, in Psalms 22 that we talked about last week. Um, it's a slow, agonizing death. The, the muscles in the, of the diaphragm are put the chest into a, the inhaled position. Basically, in order to exhale... The individual must push up on that spike through their feet to gain air. And uh, then the tensions on the muscles would be eased for a moment. They'd be able to, to exhale, and, uh, and then they could go back down and inhale again. And this, they, their, their back would be on that rough cross going up and down, and they'd be pushing. So you either, you either suffocate or you experience excruciating pain. And this horrible... Method of torture was what they did to Jesus. Um, And this would go on and on every breath. Every breath was a torture, every time. And so as the person slows down his breathing, he goes into what's called respiratory acidosis, another medical term, which basically says the carbon dioxide in the blood would start to dissolve as carbonic acid, causing the acidity of the blood to increase. This eventually leads to an irregular heartbeat, and in fact this heart beating erratically Jesus would have known that he was getting close to the moment of death which is why he was able to say lord into your hands i commit my spirit and then died of basically cardiac arrest caused by uh, not being not having enough oxygen in his blood um and, and, and even before he died, and this is important, the hypovolemic shock would have caused a s- sustained rapid heartbeat. So his heart would have been beating fast for a long period of time. And the fluid around the membrane around the heart, this is called pediocardial effusion, as well as around the lungs called pleural effusion, would develop from this f- rapid heartbeat and from the lack of oxygen. And basically this, this clear fluid would start to form around the heart and around the lungs. And, um, and of course, you know why that's significant. Because after he died, um, they took a spear and, and shoved it into his side. Because the, Rom- the Romans, they, they know when someone's alive and when someone's dead. They looked at him and they went, oh, he's dead. Uh, they've crucified hundreds of people. These guys were, were experienced executionists. They know when someone's dead, so they went, oh, he's dead, no, well, will just make sure. And they shove a, a sword into, or a spear into his side between his ribs, up into the heart cavity, and probably into the heart itself, and pull it out, and out comes uh, what John describes as blood and water. And basically what, what would happen was a, a large volume of, of uh, clear fluid would come out and followed by a large volume of water. And it's absolutely certain that when that happens uh medically speaking the person's been dead for a while because that that uh, fluid doesn't develop around the heart uh until you are at that point when your heart is uh is dying basically and so we kind of get to that point where um this doctor alexander was asked Well, let's just suppose he did survive. (laughs) He's like, well, he couldn't have. It's impossible. The medical evidence shows categorically that he was dead when they took him down off the cross. Um, But someone pushed him on it and said, well, what would happen if this person actually survived? Now, you know, I had a friend who was um, hit by a bulldozer um, and he got kind of crushed between a a car, uh, his pickup truck, and a, and a, a front-end loader. And um, when you sustain grave injuries like that, your body goes into absolute shock, and you can't function. My friend was in a coma for four months, and he lost uh, 200 pounds. He was a big man. In fact, Rod, when when I remember one time I was at, at a friend's house, and uh, Rod... Or somebody said, "Oh, uh, someone went in the ditch." So Rod got up and left, and uh, and then someone else said, "Oh, we need a whole bunch of people to push this car out of the ditch." Well, when we got to where the car was in the ditch, the car was no longer in the ditch, and people were like, "What happened?" Oh, Rod pushed it out. <laughs> he just pushed the car out by himself. This guy was huge. He's like a, about 260 pounds and, and like as tall as me, and just massive. He was a tank. And anyways. He was when I when I visited him in the hospital in in after after about, about seven months of recovery in the hospital, he still had not gotten out of bed from his injuries. And this is what's interesting about Jesus. Because we have Jesus walking around in the garden. When Mary comes along and talks to him, he's got big holes in his feet. He's had the, the nerve endings in his feet crushed. He was in no shape to be walking around. And, and the very same day, what, what's he doing? He's walking 12 miles to Emmaus. 12 miles with a couple of guys just chatting away. He's not limping. He's not, it just doesn't line up. It doesn't line up with the swoon theory, it's impossible. That kind of person would be in traction, would be in, in, in medical care for months and months on, on end. He'd not be able to walk. And, and if he did show up to the disciples and basically crawl through the door somehow by some miracle, what would they have thought? Oh, the resurrected Lord of life. <laughs> Somehow, I don't think so, they'd be going like, oh, poor guy, we better bandage him up, we better fix him up, we better help him. No, but when they saw him, they were in awe. And he still had the wounds, interestingly, but they were in awe of him and thought they saw a ghost because they knew that nobody could survive uh, crucifixion. But well, you know I've been saying some of this kind of dispassionately to kind of prove a point but I'm not dispassionate about this I've often said to my kids I would die for you but I wonder if I would go through something like what Jesus went through for them I don't I don't think I can answer that question but Jesus did it willingly for me. He did it because he loved me. And he didn't want me to suffer eternal punishment for my sins. And so he died on the cross for me. And you know this, this song we sang at the beginning of the of the service? We sang this amazing grace, this amazing love that you would take my place and bear my cross. You laid down your life so that I could go free. That is the love that Jesus, that sent Jesus to the cross, the love for you and me. And you know, whether you believe that Jesus swooned and rose again or whether you believe whatever you believe, one of the things that makes the death of Jesus Christ so powerful is that the Bible says he did it for us. He was compelled to do it because he wanted us to survive God's wrath against sin. He wanted us to have a relationship with his heavenly father. He wanted to have a relationship with us. And so if we say, eh, I have a hard time believing that, what we're actually doing is we're slapping God in the face and saying, i don't really believe that you did that for me i believe this was just some twist of history and and look at it from god's perspective look at it from my perspective you know i have you ever been betrayed i've been betrayed a few times i I have some big betrayals and some little betrayals Uh, i share one little betrayal I, i remember uh family showed up at the doorstep of the church oh we don't have a place to stay we we're hungry we need this we need that so I take them home serve them food give them lodging do all that stuff and then I take them to the bus station pay for their bus tickets do all that stuff and then I I go to get some gas pull up my my wallet and where's my credit card where's my money (laughs) it's all gone and, you know, it's one thing to not know or to, you know, have have your money stolen. But when you feel betrayed, it's pretty brutal. And you know what? I believe God feels betrayed every time we take his gift of his precious son, the, the, the Lord, and we just, oh, I'm not sure if that really is real or true. Or, that's a betrayal. Of God, And he goes, I, I can't imagine what he would feel like. I did all that for you. And you just go, thanks, but no thanks. And we wonder why he would be wrathful at that point. If one of my sons had gone to war, or had died for your freedom, and you didn't have the courtesy to thank me, (laughs) I wouldn't be too happy, (laughs) you know? I can just imagine what people who've had their children die for someone else, so someone else could have a better life. What that rejection would feel like, it would be awful. And so today we we come. I I thought I'd stop in the middle of my message to, to, to have communion. And we come to this communion table to remember the death of Christ. I think I was pretty graphic in my description of what happened. When we bite into this wheat cracker, we are biting into something that was crushed. It was pulverized, basically, to make wheat from grains. When we drink this grape juice, we're we're drinking something that was crushed to make the juice. And so we are actually participating in that event. We're dying to ourselves. We're dying with Christ. Is what what we do. In fact, the Bible says that if you don't participate in this event with that knowledge with that belief that jesus died for your sins you're slapping god in the face so don't do that don't partake of this meal without understanding what it means let me me just read what it says paul paul writes this so then whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the blood of body and blood of the lord everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup for those who eat and drink without in discerning the body of jesus christ will eat and drink judgment on themselves and so i believe that we need to be careful when we eat of this and drink of this and i believe that there are some here who maybe have never offered their life To Jesus Christ have never thanked him who've never asked for forgiveness of sins and recognize that because of Christ's death horrible death on the cross their sins can be washed away and so I'd like to give you an opportunity to do that right now is to just bow in your heart before almighty God and confess that you're a sinner and so I'm just going to lead you through a prayer and then we're going to partake of communion dear Lord Jesus I recognize that you are God's only son sent to die on a cross for my sin. And I accept that gift that you've given me. I accept it on my behalf. And so I confess that I've sinned. I've done wrong things in my life. And I've disappointed you in many ways. And so I pray, Lord, that because of Christ's death, you would wash away those sins from me forever. And I invite you to come in by your Holy Spirit, the risen Lord. Come and live in my heart. Give me direction in my life so I might understand your ways. And so, Lord, I I pray that you would make me new and fill me with your Holy Spirit. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you believe, if you prayed that prayer from your heart, I want to invite you to participate. In this meal, if you've never prayed a prayer like that, if you've never asked Christ into your heart, if you've never uh, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, I would ask that you don't partake of this meal, or you'll be eating judgment to yourself. <laughs> you know what? I'm just going to say a couple comments, and then we're going to close. Um, I just want want you to to know how this whole idea that Jesus died, actually died, is so common, not just amongst Christians, but it's also common amongst non-believers, historians, who look at the the facts, and they kind of go like, well, yeah, he died, we don't believe he rose again, but he definitely died, and so I'm just going to quote a couple of guys who uh, basically don't believe Jesus rose again, but they're skeptics of the faith. Uh, but this is what they say. David uh, Strauss says, "It is impossible that a being who had stolen, who who being stolen half dead out of the sepulchre, who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, requ- who requiring bandaging, strengthening indulgence, and who still at last yielded to his sufferings, could have given the disciples the impression that he was the conqueror over death, the grave, and the prince of life, an impression." that lay at the bottom of their future ministry. Such uh, resuscitation could only have weakened the impression that he had, he had made upon them in life and in death. And the most that could only have given it an elegant voice, but could by no possibility have changed their sorrow into enthusiasm and evaluate, evaluate, elevated, thank you, <laughs> their reverence into worship. And so, here's a guy who says the exact thing, same thing, but he's not a believer. Uh, I'll give you, give you another quote. And this, this scholar, uh, John Dominic Cor- Cor- Coruscant, he's quite well known. And he, he basically lives his life to denounce Christians. <laughs> That's his role in life. But this is what he said. Jesus' death by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate is as sure as anything historical can be. Isn't that amazing? Someone who's out to denounce Christianity says, Well, the fact that he died, yeah, well, that's, that's a given. And so last week I shared about uh, Daniel Echuchuwu, uh, about his resurrection, right? And, and I, I mentioned earlier that you can phone him up and, and figure out that he's alive. But what about Jesus? You know, you, you can't exactly go to the Tel Aviv directory and, you know, look up Jesus Christ. Oh, there he is. Let's go over there and have a chat with him, you know. Probably wouldn't work so well. Uh, so how do we know that he rose from the dead? Sure, we, we okay, we've, we've concluded, you know, a swoon theory is a hoax. He's dead. How do we know that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Well, that's coming next week. <laughs> so we'll see you then.